So, Jay, I was reading Avengers number 401. Nice work if you can get it, Miles. Why is Iron Man a teenager in this issue? Did he get de-aged, Magneto-style? Because I'm pretty sure Tony Stark should be an adult at this point. Oh, that's because that Iron Man is actually the Tony Stark from Earth 96020. Okay, well then what happened to the one from Earth 616? Well, he got possessed by a mortis, killed a bunch of people, sacrificed himself, and then died. Harsh. So then, teen Tony grew up. I mean, he's not a teenager these days. Nah, he just happened to be an adult when he came back from Heroes Reborn. Did they ever explain what happened? Sure. Ah, good. Three and a half years later. What?! I'm Jay Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 348 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back, as you might imagine, to more Onslaught. So, here's a question. Do you think Onslaught's gonna last longer than Inferno? Oh, geez. In terms of its uh, after-effects, you mean, or in terms of our coverage of it? In terms of our coverage, because just looking at the sheer volume, I mean... There's a lot of Onslaught. If I had to estimate, I would say more episodes than Inferno, fewer episodes than Age of Apocalypse. More episodes than Inferno if you count the fact that it's always Inferno? Well, no. No, in that case, definitely not, because that means Onslaught is technically also Inferno. You're you're making me feel better about Onslaught now. That was one of our stated goals, right? To make Onslaught good. So, this is the second episode of our Onslaught coverage. We'll try to remember to keep these numbered as we're going through so that you know how far along you are, if not necessarily how far there is left to go. That, that, that distant horizon is, is perhaps a mirage, we'll see. But uh, what's happened so far in this event? Previously on Slot. I see what you did there. <laughs> yeah. So... Professor Charles Xavier is a virtuous, selfless crusader for peace and cooperation between humans and mutants, a pure, kind, and selfless exemplar of the best of both humanity and mutant kind. I mean, not counting that one time in the X-Men Micronauts crossover when his dark side took over, wore a cape, and did some real creepy stuff. Or I guess that time that's past our current coverage, when it turned out that he got a team of X-Men killed and then erased everyone's memories of them ever existing... Or the time after that, when we found out that he'd knowingly enslaved a sentient AI to make the danger room? Or this time. The time of Onslaught. In all fairness, there are lots of other times when he's been a dick. Yeah, and I guess sometimes when he was really, really great that we didn't mention. Anyway, Professor X's resentment of humanity and the situation in general has been building for, honestly, kind of his whole repressed life, but especially as things have gotten really, really bad for mutants more recently, between the legacy virus and a series of hate crimes. And thanks to Xavier learning some tricks from Nate Gray, that incarnated resentment has now moved from the astral plane to the real world. In the form of Onslaught, a gigantic magneto-looking entity of immense psychic power. Onslaught is later going to turn out to have all along been a combination of Professor X's repressed negative emotions and 
a bunch of stuff that he, he stole out of Magneto's brain a while ago, but we haven't quite gotten there yet. After easily taking out the X-Men, and in the process revealing himself as the answer to the years-old question of who the X-Trader from Bishop's future was, Onslaught left with Dark Beast to scheme. Now, the X-Men aren't the only ones concerned about this Onslaught fellow. Nate Gray, the teenage alternate reality equivalent of Cable, has recently been threatened by a henchman of Onslaught, and has also learned to mistrust Charles Xavier for very dumb reasons. Right lesson, wrong rationale. Nate met up with the Avengers since they don't have an X in their team name, and they're all on their way to Westchester. So, what's Onslaught's plan at this point? What is Onslaught actually going for? Okay, so at this point in the story, we only know a little bit. We know that he thinks that people are jerks and sheep and uh, really shouldn't make decisions for themselves, and so he's gonna get really powerful and fix that, mostly using psychic stuff. Now, after Onslaught was published, there was a one-shot that came out called Road to Onslaught that had a lot of concept art, but also had some what appeared to be design documents for what Onslaught was supposed to be up to. So we were thinking maybe we could go through that, and as we go through our Onslaught coverage, sort of evaluate how well that does or doesn't get that intent across. Oh, I like that idea. So, according to these design documents from the Road to Onslaught one-shot, Onslaught had a few methods for his big goal. Uh, Jay, do you want to start? Well, let's see. He was going to kidnap and control both Nate Gray and Franklin Richards, at this point arguably the two most powerful mutants on the planet. And he was going to scare everybody on the planet to turn them into more freaked out, and thus more useful to him, psychic sustenance that he could then absorb and get even more powerful. Does that, what, make them more flavorful? Uh, yeah, you know, fear tastes great. It's like blue raspberry, kind of. Turns your tongue blue. He was also planning to take over the Sentinels and reverse their anti-psychic tech to boost his own psychic powers. Weird, but I'll allow it. And my favorite part, he was going to use Landau, Luckman, and Lake's interdimensional portals and the mutant gateway to spread his psychic powers and messages of fear and stuff throughout the world, which would then turn all the minds on Earth into one big collective intelligence, figuring that, well, since people make bad choices, I should just take that away from them and we should just be one big entity making one good choice. That's uh, very phallic of him. Yeah, yeah, it kind of is. So, in theory, this was the plan from the start. That being said, this is a Scott Lobdell story, and Lobdell is famous for making things up as he went along. So, like I said, as we go, let's sort of look into how much this comes across and how much it gets lost in the shuffle of a ton of tie-ins. I mean, one of the advantages of covering Onslaught the way we are is that it's a story that largely can be made more sense of in retrospect than in, in actuality. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That being said, it was a somewhat well-organized story. So, last time we did the Onslaught X-Men one-shot, the official beginning of the story, even though there was a ton of lead-up to it, and after that, we have Phase 1 and Phase 2. And alongside Phase 1 and Phase 2, we have Impact 1 and Impact 2. So, Jay, what the hell are those? Alright, so the phases, phase one and phase two, are the stories that are the central plot. Impacts one and two are tie-ins. They're stuff that's happening around the periphery of the main story. But the thing is, 
A lot of the impact issues are tied so heavily into the phase issues that the phase issues don't fully make sense without at least being kind of aware of the impact issues. I like the organizational premise, I don't know how effective it was. Yeah, it plays out very oddly, and it makes me wonder how much specifically of that was or wasn't planned, as well as the actual story. Well, regardless, right now we are firmly in Phase 1, slash Impact 1, and uh, so we're going to be covering over the next number of episodes a bunch of stories that are taking place somewhat in order, somewhat simultaneously. If you're reading the books as they came out every week, barring delays, it would kind of make sense. We're just doing our best to turn this into coherent podcast episodes. Thank you for joining us on this long, scary ride. And that takes us to Uncanny X-Men number 335, Apocalypse Lives. Written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Joe Matarera, inked by Tim Townsend, colored by Steve Bucciolato and Team Buse, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And in a way, this is sort of Onslaught X-Men number 2. It is an issue that sets up basically everything that happens in Phase 1 and Impact 1. If you didn't read this issue, a lot of those wouldn't really make much sense. I find it really, really funny that they use Apocalypse as an introductory vehicle for Onslaught. Yeah, I mean, he does factor into the story, but it's it's a little odd. You know, though, speaking of Apocalypse, this issue also reminds me of X-Men Alpha, the one-shot that launched the Age of Apocalypse miniseries, because it launches all the other plot lines in Phase 1 the same way Alpha launched all the miniseries. I can sort of see that. I think Alpha was more of a general introduction to the event, and this one is definitely happening with things already well underway. Totally, yeah. And one of those things happening underway and underground, as you alluded to, Jay, is the rebirth of Apocalypse. Again? Once again. You may recall that Apocalypse was kinda sorta killed in Executioner's Song. He got in a fight with the Dark Riders and was bleeding out, asked Archangel to kill him, and Archangel said, No, you must die weak and alone. Or as it turns out, um, not die. Because here, deep underground, in Egypt, Ozymandias, you remember the ancient Egyptian warlord who was turned into animate stone and cursed by Apocalypse to carve his prophecies into, like, other stones? Anyway, he is near a sarcophagus which has burst open to reveal a magnificent robot mummy, I guess? Like, let's talk about Apocalypse's look here, okay? Uh, he is. He is a vivid gentleman. He is. Like... So he's, you know, his usual blue robotic self, fine, but he's also covered in bright red mummy wrappings. I mean, okay, but they're mostly on his hands and forearms, because I guess that looks cool. It makes him look like a Street Fighter character, but like some of the wrappings are also tucked into his waistband or tangled around his metal tubing. This does not look practical. Maybe they're bandages from, from his, his last fight? I, I guess? Or, oh, you know, maybe they're like um, those tooth whitening strips, but instead of um, whitening his teeth, they add livingness to his body? Eh? I think he thinks they look cool. I mean, basically that. Like, we know Joe Mad is a very manga-tacular artist, and I've read the Trigun manga. You can just wrap stuff in strips of cloth, and that makes it look cooler, even if in real life it would mostly just be a tripping hazard. So who do you think wrapped Apocalypse up? Was this Apocalypse himself pre-hibernation, or do you think Ozymandias came and, like, carefully, you know, semi-mummified him? 
Honestly, I think he did it himself, and that's probably why there's such a shitty rapping job. He couldn't reach very well. Ooh, yeah. It's, auto mummification is a rough, rough road to walk. Or hop, I guess, because your feet are going to be wrapped together after a certain point. Oh, maybe he's like a hopping vampire. I love hopping vampires. A hopolips. A hopolips. I'm so glad we podcast together, Jay. I have my moments. Anyway, Apocalypse gets quickly brought up to speed from his minion Ozymandias, and they hover dramatically up to the full Egyptian moon, as Apocalypse villain explains to, you know, the Watcher, who's here. Apocalypse, as it turns out, is well aware of the Watcher, and he's aware that the Watcher's presence means that there is something big going down. It can only mean one thing. That's the aid of wonders nears its end. The brief aberration in history when mere humans share in the glory of power beyond their ken. A time when men flew to the stars and fell to earth as gods. When the favored son of immortal Asgard once more walked the earth and embraced mortals. And assemblages of heroes gathered to avenge those unable to defend themselves. Speaking of such heroes, the Avengers are headed over to the X-Mansion right now in their Quinjet. I think it's called a Quinjet because there were five Avengers. Captain America, Iron Man, Thor, Quicksilver, and the Scarlet Witch. Uncool, man. Vision is right there. Well, he's, he's in the back. It doesn't count. It's like the Quinjet with the vision compartment in the back. Hey, I don't make the rules. Do you think he has like a little vision seat? Oh, I think he totally does. I'm kind of reminded of uh, some of the vehicles from the Masters of the Universe toy line. My favorite was this like dinosaur skeleton and its ribs had kind of little U-shaped hooks that you could cram the waists of other action figures into. And then you could have it walk around and it just looked so uncomfortable. But man, that reminds me that I've got to yell on a microphone for a while tonight for Garden Plots with Skeletor. Oh, yeah. Uh, Listeners, if you haven't listened to that show, Jay and I have both been on it. Uh, More Jay than me. It's so much fun. I play Ram Man, which is great because it means that I just get to yell all the fucking time. Yelling is great. By which I mean, yelling is great! I pretty much warm up by by watching videos of Bernie Sanders angry. (laughs) Scenes from The Tick, just in, in alternating. Which pretty much gets me where I need to go. I mean, that sounds pretty delightful in general. Oh, it is. Well, anyway, the Avengers in their Quinjet get to the X-Mansion, and it is in terrible shape after what happened between Onslaught and the X-Men. One whole wing has been smashed to bits, the rest of it's looking pretty rough as well. And as they land, they are met by the X-Men, which means, of course, it's time for a misunderstanding-based fight. I, I, I think you mean that it's it's a time for an X-Man-based fight. Right, because Nate Gray is there with the Avengers. He, of course, is along for the ride. And despite everybody's posturing, the X-Men mainly just want to telepathically verify that the Avengers are the Avengers. You know, Onslaught being a telepath, which is kind of reasonable. But then Nate, uh, he's got a Nate. Yeah, he does. Nate, Nate Gray, the, the incarnated misunderstanding-based fight, decides that he is going to violently yoink all of the info about what's going on out of the X-Men's mind and create a giant telepathic projection of Onslaught, because that's a good plan. And, like, the X-Men don't freak out too much, although they're really annoyed by this invasion of their minds. 
But when they try to explain what's going on, like, yes, Xavier has been taken over by this force that we think is related to Magneto and we have to fix things. Natchez does this whole I told you so speech about Xavier being evil and then it turns right back into a fight again. So why does Nate think that Xavier is so evil? Okay, so Nate's main encounter from, I believe, X-Man number 10 with Xavier was noticing that Xavier was telepathically, astrally observing him, because Xavier was like, hey, what's up with this really powerful kid with the funny hair? At which point, Nate psychically attacked Professor X and yelled a lot as Xavier begged him to just calm down and listen, and then pulled Xavier out of the astral plane into the physical world and knocked him out and thought that he had killed him. So X-Man thought he had killed Xavier, and therefore Xavier is evil. Yeah, Nate's kind of cherry-picking evidence to support his conclusion that Xavier is evil here, and not necessarily in a way that makes any damn sense. To quote the Big Lebowski, you're not wrong, you're just an asshole. (laughs) Basically, but also inconsistent because at the end of X-Man number 17, after Nate had a big fight with Holocaust, Holocaust was like, hey, my boss Onslaught's gonna come after you. And Nate went to the Avengers, hoping they would help him with Onslaught. But all of a sudden, he's like, no, Xavier has clearly gone insane. When he shows up at the end of Avengers number 400, that's what he says. I don't know how we got from the one to the other. I mean, he's, he's Nate Gray. He goes places. He does. Remember when he fronted a rock band briefly? I do remember when he fronted a rock band. Was that before or after he was playing, like, three-card Monty in Central Park a lot? I have no idea. My my sense of time and causality within that series is very blurry. Yeah, I read it all in like one big fever dream go that took me about two weeks, so it really all blended together. Anyway, in the mansion itself, after everybody has decided to tell Nate to shut up and they've all stopped fighting, Bishop watches the full version of Gene's X-Trader tape for the first time. Remember, this is the tape that Bishop saw in his future of the X-Men dying and just managed to alter fate immediately after as he saved the X-Men from being killed by Onslaught. This is also the tape whose incomplete version was part of what led Bishop to suspect that Gambit was going to be the X-Trader. And now, as Gambit comes and finds him listening to the full tape, Bishop Bishop apologizes profusely, to which Gambit responds, Don't bother, mon ami. I just have one of those personalities people find suspicious. Take comfort into small certainties, Bishop. You'll always be a raven paranoid, and I'm always going to be a charming louse. Miles? Mm-hmm? I ship it real hard. Yeah, I kind of do also. They're going to get a series together. It's called Children of the Atom, as I recall, and uh, I haven't actually read any of it, so I'm excited to check it out. I hope it's good. I hope it's kissing. I hope it's kissing, yes. I really do like this, though. Like... Gambit and Bishop going from being, like, nemeses to each other to gradually and grudgingly building what turns into a genuine friendship, I think it's handled really well in X-Men. Absolutely. Well, the teams get together and strategize, so it's time to talk about all the upcoming plot lines. This is the X-Men Alpha portion of the issue. Alright. In the Avengers book... Uh, team number one, made up primarily of Avengers with a few X-Men, is going to seek out Magneto, who everyone's pretty sure is somehow controlling Xavier. And we'll actually get to that later in this very episode. Team two, made up of slightly more X-Men and slightly fewer Avengers, will go find the Fantastic Four, since they know that Onslaught is after Franklin Richards. Yeah, he was totally Facebook stalking him. It was creepy. 
I'm pretty sure Facebook didn't exist in 1998. Okay, a Frank book? Nah. Anyway, that'll be in Fantastic Four. Cyclops and Phoenix are off to Muir Isle, having been in contact with Moira McTaggart, who, in a scene involving her next caliber, dramatically puts it to her own team. We never wanted it to come to this, but it might be time to unseal the Xavier Protocols. You'd think that Excalibur would be kind of busy right now, what with London being on fire and a demon rising from underground, but I guess crossovers wait for no plotline. And speaking of, Archangel and Psylocke, who are mostly healed up except for their perpetual angst, which will never heal, are en route to meet the Mere Island folks as well. That'll all be in Excalibur. But no sooner have those teams divided up than X-Force comes in, having gotten Jean's call for help. It is their job to do what no one wants to do, which is to keep an eye on Nate Gray in the X-Mansion. So that'll be a crossover between the X-Man and X-Force books. I'm imagining them just, like, frantically trying to babysit him, being like, Are you sh- do you want to play Scrabble, Nate? Do you want to play Risk? Do you want some crayons? Crayons are fun. See, I'm just imagining every time he starts to say anything, Siren just says, Nope! And just will not let him finish a sentence. That also seems reasonable. Storm is worried about Cable. I mean, X-Force has no idea where he is right now. So she is off to look for him. I mean, Onslaught is clearly going after powerful psychics, so sure. That's going to be covered in Cable and also in Hulk. I really appreciate that Scott didn't want to play favorites to look for his son Cable, but is also so grateful to Storm for doing so. It's sweet. And Logan has a mysterious hunch in the space where his nose used to be, and rides off on a motorcycle. (laughs) Anyway, uh, right, okay, so, Logan, this is his era of wearing a blue bandana with eye holes like a pseudo-ninja turtle. Um, it's a weird look, it covers where his nose used to be. You know, this is just a weird Wolverine era, and I kind of love it, but it is bizarre. The look is very AOA Colossus. It kind of is, yeah. Well... Dark Beast is technically an X-Man, so he gets a plot line too. Remember, he went off with Onslaught saying, I want to serve the guy that's going to win in the previous one-shot. Onslaught commands Dark Beast to find him some Dark Attendants. (laughs) What? Dark Attendants, you know, um, henchmen who every time you call their name have to raise their hand and say present, I guess. God, why not just be like, "I I want mysterious henchmen. Onslaught is really silly. Yes, he is. He's dramatic. I respect that. Anyway, that plot line will be an X factor. And after all of those things, with the little bit of Generation X that doesn't tie in too much, we're going to meet back up in Adjectiveless X-Men to move on to Phase and Impact 2. So, preview of what we're going to be covering for some number of episodes after this one. For now, though, we're going to take a brief detour to X-Men Unlimited number 11, Adrift. It's plot by Scott Lobdell, script by Terry Cavanaugh, pencils by Steve Epting and Mark Miller, inks by Mike Sutlers, Al Milgram, Scott Coplish, and Harry Candelario, colors by Matt Webb, and letters by Richard Starkings and Comacraft. Scott Coplish. We love that guy. Right. Favorite Scott. Now, this, this story takes place a few months before Onslaught, but it leads directly into the issue of Avengers we're going to be covering next, so we're going to stop and talk about this for now. As you may recall, Rogue left the X-Men after fighting Gambit in an old theater in X-Men 45. A while later, in X-Men 52, Rogue rented a room from a woman named Melody Watkins and Melody's son Stevie. Since then, she's been working as a waitress, 
And Melody is an iffy landlord. I mean, she's probably fine as a landlord. She seems to be overcharging Rogue based on the hours Rogue is working. But she's also clearly bought into some of the anti-mutant sentiment, although more out of fear than antipathy. Okay, I recognize that the anti-mutant sentiment part is what's actually relevant to the plot, but let's talk about this, because Rogue at one point mentions that she is working her waitressing job 72 hours a week to be able to rent a room and make car payments. Like, what, is she in fucking San Francisco or something? This is supposed to be a Carolina of some sort. Well, we also know that she's being paid under the table, so she's presumably making less than minimum waitressing wage, which is already significantly under minimum wage. Or maybe it's that she spent so much money repurchasing slash reconstructing her incredibly fancy red dress from X-Men number four that she wore on that date with Gambit that she has barely anything left over for necessities. She wears it to work, which is weird because we see her colleagues in like jeans and t-shirts. Right? Also, what's weird is that based on that first panel of her at her job, she seems to be walking on the bar What's happening here? Like, this is apparently a restaurant called the Hollywood Cafe, so maybe it's like Planet Hollywood. I haven't been to a Planet Hollywood. Do waitstaff walk on bars there? What's happening? I have likewise never been to a Planet Hollywood, so I have no idea either. I I can only assume that this is, this is um, what someone believes that fancy bars in North Carolina are like. I mean, I guess we were pretty broke when we were in North Carolina, so we never went to any fancy bars, so maybe they are. I suppose it could be. Now, going back to Melody, this issue opens with with Melody struggling with the decision, but going ahead ultimately and turning Rogue into a group called Humanity's Last Stand. So let's take a second and talk about these particular assholes. These motherfuckers. I hate them so much. So, Humanity's Last Stand is a human separatist anti-mutant group, and it's led by a guy who only gets referred to as Mr. Trask in this book, but whom we'll later find out is Simon Trask that's Bolivar's brother. Simon Trask is sort of the shitty Trask. I mean, they're all kind of shitty. Yeah, but he's just boring. I guess. So So he is. he has teamed up with, a, with another... Um, fairly shitty fellow by the name of Bastion, who's a little bit more complicated. Bastion, as you may recall, is the white-haired fellow who has some oblique connection to the Super Sentinel Nimrod, and is also working with Graydon Creed and running something called Operation Zero Tolerance that's going to be a very, very big deal in the post-onslaught days. So many anti-mutant groups. That's probably part of why Xavier was frustrated enough to turn into Onslaught. He couldn't keep them all straight. And two of them are now working together fairly closely. So, Humanity's Last Stand has a compound housing about 100 people, mostly families, and they've also got downtown offices, which is where you go to report that your neighbor is a mutant. I really like the scene where Melody walks in and then almost walks out. She sees one of the reps there on the phone talking to a company that makes body makeup, saying, hey, you know, seems like body makeup would probably be used by uh, mutants trying to disguise themselves as normal folks, so uh, you better stop selling that or you're going to hear from us again. Just... That pervasive level of anti-mutant sentiment just impacting even the smallest stuff, that's a good way to convey that. Yeah, absolutely. So Melody has a change of heart, ultimately, and she tells Rogue what she did, but it's too late because HLS shows up with giant robots and Bastion himself holds little Stevie hostage and threatens Melody to get control of Rogue. So she surrenders and they take her away and put her in some of those weird turbine handcuff foot cuff things. 
and do what villains do, which is explain their plan in detail since she's not supposed to survive to see the end of it anyway. So what they're expecting to do here is murder everyone in the compound, remember they've got about 100 people living there, and plant Rogue's body in the wreckage to make it look like she did it. And the Humanities Last Stand guards present are like, wait, wait, you're, you're saying you're going to kill us and all of our friends to make an example? That, that's not cool. And Bastion, because he is an absolutely classic villain in this respect, just turns around and shoots the guy. This is what makes Bastion scary, though. I mean, even aside from all the robot stuff, he cares more about killing mutants than about protecting humans. He's based on hate as much as he says what he's trying to do is based on taking care of humanity. He actually kind of reminds me of what the Sentinels in Days of Future Past turn into, which I guess makes sense since he is essentially an advanced Sentinel from the future himself. That's right. Now, luckily for Rogue and for the people of HLS, the other guard with moral concerns is, as it turns out, a mutant who has infiltrated the organization. And not just any mutant, this is a mutant with long white hair who controls metal. Wait a minute. That's right, Miles. You haven't seen him in a while, but it's the return of... Joseph. Yeah, yeah, so Joseph, oh boy, you know, it'll turn out his deal is way more complicated, like, too complicated, but for now, as far as we know, Joseph is a mysteriously de-aged, amnesiac version of Magneto, basically a version of Magneto who has the potential to A, be a love interest for Rogue, and B, maybe not be as guilty of all the bad shit he did because he doesn't remember it. To vastly oversimplify, he will later turn out to be a clone. Yeah, pretty much that. Rogue's pretty skeptical and pretty pissed because she kind of had a thing with Magneto in the Savage Land, and then he did some very, very bad things after that and was not willing to listen to her or acknowledge that their connection meant even close to as much as his vendetta against humanity. So she is not a Magneto fan right now. She is an angry ex, and fair enough. However, she gradually comes to accept that Joseph has no memory of being Magneto and is really trying his best to be a good guy, so they team up and save the people of uh, HLS from the robots, but still get run out of town at gunpoint. Not only at gunpoint, but at some kind of techno-organic gunpoint that's like built into a dude's arm, which again, isn't going to be that important right now, but is going to very heavily tie into what we're going to see in OZT. Wait, is... Is that like a Mega Man-style arm cannon? I just thought it was a badly drawn panel of a guy holding a gun. No, you see him holding a gun, but you also see his arm starting to transform at one point. I gotta go back and look at that. That's actually impressive foreshadowing, especially for an era that didn't really have much coherent foreshadowing. Right, and this is specifically foreshadowing something that's going to be called the Omega Sentinels, whom, again, we will see in Operation Zero Tolerance. We're pretty scary guys, but they're not actually germane to the story at this point, so we're going to just shelve them for the moment. Now, Joseph is clearly struggling at this point between his better nature and his Magneto-like impulses, and Rogue really hopes to weigh him towards the former. And part of doing that is her trying very hard to make sure he doesn't hear too much about Magneto because she's worried he'll go evil if he does. I'm not so sure about that logic, but it'll be important next issue, so we're just going to go with it. And when a helicopter comes after them, she's actually able to talk him out of blowing them up with their own missiles, and instead he fakes his and Rogue's death in the explosion. Which is kind of a cool callback, because, I mean, 
Magneto having military-grade nuclear missiles and threatening humanity with them, that's been a thing, like, a couple of major times, including in the very first issue of X-Men. Yeah, that's a really good point, and it's a really good point of differentiation from Joseph at this point to Magneto as he was. So after an awkward but tearful goodbye to Melody and Stevie, who are in fact okay, Rogue and Joseph head off in Rogue's partially paid-for Volkswagen Beetle to go find and meet up with the X-Men. And Rogue explains to Joseph. That's why we do it, Joseph. For the innocents, the ones who ain't been taught to hate yet. Our hope for tomorrow. Change is gonna come. And meanwhile, for his villainous part, Bastion is disappointed to have his plans foiled, but he's pretty excited by the anti-mutant propaganda potential of what's apparently a newly resurrected Magneto. But this isn't Bastion Slot, it's Onslaught! Which leads us to Avengers number 401, Sins of the Father. Written by Mark Wade, with breakdowns by Mike Diodato and finishes by Tom Palmer, colors by John Callis, and letters by Bill Oakley. Okay, Jay, before we even dive into this issue, can we talk about Thor's costume? Yeah, he's, he's definitely topless for most of this issue. Yeah, so inside the issue, his costume is not wearing a shirt. Like, that's, that's basically his costume. He's, he's got some blue pants, and his hammer, and no, no shirt. And that contrasts quite a bit with whatever the fuck is going on on the cover. Now, listeners, you probably know by now, I really like Thor. I, there are a couple of runs of Thor that are very special to me, and I like Thor's classic look. I'm, I'm not tied to it. There are other good looks, like the current look in the Donny Cates run with the big rune on it. That's pretty cool. The armor, pretty cool. The movie, that's fine. But this? It's like a fantasy midriff-bearing version of, of Cyclops' costume. You know, blue with random yellow straps and padded yellow chest harnessy stuff. Just randomly placed, though, and there's, like, a cod piece, and... What I really love is the fucking wallet chain on the altar. I mean, it's 1997, so I guess you gotta put a chain on something. I, the only thing that would make it better, I guess this would technically be a year or two later, I just want to see Thor flying around in some big fucking jinkos. Oh my god. <laughs> it's a choice. Well, anyway, I guess that's not really relevant, but but goddamn 90s fashion. Actually, a lot of the Avengers have new costumes around here, but I think Thor's is really the most egregious. Whether we're talking about the not having a shirt is my costume costume, or that thing on the cover. I actually kind of dig the look that Scarlet Witch is sporting these days. Uh, in 97? Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of cool. Like, it's this sort of... I don't even know. How would you describe it? Like, it's almost casual compared to her own look, but it still feels wizardy. I like the sleeves. It reminds me very much um, aesthetically and just in, in terms of, of its its silhouette of um, Psylocke's early kind of armored costume. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good parallel. Uh, also, the Wasp is like a mutant wasp person at this point, and that's part of her costume, but we'll get to that in the Fantastic Four issue. What a weird time for the Avengers. I can maybe kind of understand why they rebooted the Avengers like right after this, briefly. Oh, yeah. Anyway, all of that very much aside, so the Avengers have brought Gambit to the Avengers Mansion, which kind of just looks like the world's most generic middle school in this page. Like, it's just this boring-looking red brick building. I'm not an Avengers fan, so I don't know how consistent that is, but it is not impressive. And they won't let him climb to the roof. He wants to just climb to the roof, and they're like, no, no, we don't want the Quinjet from the roof anymore because there were noise complaints. We launch it from the basement. 
And from the basement's launch tube that Iron Man forgets to open until the very last second as they speed toward it because he's so busy talking about all the gadgets he's built into it. Remember, this is teenage Tony Stark, as we alluded to in the cold open. So he is both better and worse at reading the room than his uh, adult mustachioed equivalent. Man, don't let teenagers be superheroes. I mean, you know, there's the uh, Kamala Khan act in uh, Modern Marvel, which is all about that. Although I do not agree with that act, because clearly everybody who supports it is a bad guy or misguided, and everyone who agrees with it is a good guy based on the way the stories have been written. It's a complicated ethical issue. Yeah, yeah, it kind of is. Um, They actually had to go here, by the way, to get a fresh Quinjet because their Nate Gray misunderstanding-based fight caused their last one to get wrecked. Of course it did. So this is the team that is going after Magneto, that's trying to find him under the assumption that he's the one somehow controlling Onslaught and controlling Professor X. Now, Magneto has a history of being able to dodge Cerebro, but Hank Pym, um, who I believe is giant man at this point, has found a way around this. He has found an electromagnetic spike in South Carolina, and that's what they're heading off to. Oh yeah, South Carolina, says Captain America. I remember that state. Everyone wears fancy dresses and walks on the bar there. That was North Carolina. Oh. Well, I don't know. There's some similarities. Anyway, on the way, we learn a lot about Magneto from his kid's perspective. Because remember, Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch, who at this point in continuity are very much Magneto's children, are here. And they also were members of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, where he was a real dick to them while he did evil things. The Scarlet Witch puts it pretty well. His notions of kindness and benevolence were repulsive. Whenever I wavered in my loyalty for a heartbeat, whenever I toyed with the notion of leaving his service, he would find a way to hold on to me. Tightly. And the art of this flashback shows her in sort of a helpless, magnetically held pinup pose. And I don't know if this is intentional. I don't know if she's being sexualized here just because it's the 90s and everybody was, or if there's more to it. But it does kind of remind me of the very recent Mark Wade written flashback to Xavier having a crush on Jean. I don't know if that's a real connection, but I considered that it might have been. Oh god, if so, it's doubly creepy in this case. Now, when they were in the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, I believe that none of the three of them knew that, that Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch were Magneto's kids. Right, that didn't come until later. But still. But still. Wanda's worried about being helpless and scared again if she's around Magneto again, and Quicksilver is also right back to his furious, aggressive defense of his sister. It's like my old therapist used to say, in times of stress, we regress. They're going right back to the people they used to be around Magneto in those early, early Silver Age days. Meanwhile, not in South Carolina at all, but in Norfolk, Virginia, Rogue and Joseph stop to get their car fixed. The mechanic is being a sexist jerk to Rogue when she says she thinks she can fix his broken lift, so Joseph magnetically fixes it in the background. And clearly their dynamic has progressed, as the narration puts it about Rogue. She's trying hard not to flirt, and failing miserably. That line sounds so familiar. I feel like that's referencing an older X story, but I could not think of which. But it's it's really fun. They're just sort of sweet and clearly enjoying each other's company. And this makes sense. I mean, Rogue and Magneto clicked really hard back in the Savage Land away from all the conflicts of the world. And Rogue was crushed when it became clear that wasn't going to work out once they were away from someplace so isolated. So this is kind of almost a second chance for her to connect to this person that is really special to her without all the evil baggage. 
Meanwhile, though, she's very, very worried about what's going to happen if he connects too much about his past or even learns too much about it, which of course is the ideal cue for the Avengers to land, and Pietro, who is even better than Nate Gray at starting misunderstanding-based fights, runs in. I mean, doing things quickly is Pietro's deal, so of course he's going to punch a random uh, bystander more quickly than Nate might. I mean, a random bystander who, in all fairness, is a clone of his supervillain dad. Yeah, that's true. I don't know, though. Like, everyone seems to immediately recognize Joseph as being a de-aged Magneto, but he's 20 years younger, and I mean, admittedly, I don't think either of us is great with faces, but I don't know that I could pick somebody out if they were a 20-year younger version of somebody I knew. It's his lustrous silver mane. It is a lustrous silver mane. That's true. Now, entirely coincidentally, the only X-Man here is Gambit. So, Rogue sees Gambit, Gambit sees Rogue, and he figures, wait, she's hanging out with Magneto, she must be mind-controlled, rather than having any reasons or opinions of her own. In his defense, they know that Magneto is linked to Onslaught, and Onslaught's whole thing is mind-control. So he's not entirely jumping to that conclusion. I mean, I guess, but... Come on, Gambit, listen to women. Be better. Well, yeah. Rogue fights everybody so that they don't say the word Magneto too much. My favorite part of the fight, though, is when Rogue thwams Thor with a right hook. And Thor says, A blow worthy of a frost giant. I am impressed. And of course, a young, powered-up Joseph is able to very efficiently take out the rest of the heroes, which includes using his powers to magnetically bind Wanda in the exact same pinup pose she was in in the flashback. On the one hand, good narrative device. On the other hand, damn it, the 90s. They could have done that with a different pose and made it work. Like, it's it's one of those sexy peril situations that I really dislike. You know what I prefer to sexy peril? Sexy parrots, I assume? I've really thought about parrots being sexy or not. The words just kind of sound the same. Huh. Anyway. I bet parrots make really horrible noises when they're mating. Oh god, I bet they do. I'm so glad I've never seen a parrot mate. I hope I never do. Or, well, at least never hear it. Just like murder sounds. Oh man. It's hard to be a parrot, I assume. Anyway, Wanda breaks free using sheer willpower and hex magic because she has, despite her worries, really grown as a person. She's more mature, she's stronger, she's more confident. And that's when she realizes that, you know, this guy, Joseph, who's suddenly very, very worried about her as she makes noises of exertion and panic when he restrains her, he's not the same guy. This guy isn't nearly as much of a cruel, dehumanizing prick as Magneto. You know who does not come to that realization? Quicksilver. Yeah, Quicksilver decides that the ideal thing to do here is to break off basically a stake to, of wood, not not of meat, to, to impale um, what he believes to be his father. And Wanda freezes for a moment. She doesn't have to do anything. She can let her brother protect her, as he always has, and take away her fears. As he always will. But instead, she uses her hex powers to detonate the pier in between them to break up the fight. And they're like, no, that's impossible. And she replies, no, merely improbable. And that's my specialty. Okay, improbable? 
What percent chance did that pier have of spontaneously detonating? Come on. Low but extant, apparently. Apparently. So Wanda convinces her brother Pietro. She's different now. Pietro's different now. Why can't Magneto also be different now? And with that, they head off to bring Joseph to New York. Bringing with them also a sad and jealous Gambit who pouts at them from across the Quinjet. You know, Gambit, the last time Rogue rejected you for a long-haired version of Magneto in the Age of Apocalypse, you went off and started a gang of space thieves. Maybe you should do that now. Yeah, that was rad. That was rad, except for that time that, to emphasize a point, he ripped out a bunch of machinery from the control console of a spaceship. That was a bad decision. Actually, there were a lot of bad decisions in that comic. I mean, it's Gambit. If you're reading a comic for good decisions, this is not the way to go. Fair. You know who makes good decisions? Our listeners. When they're confused, they send us their questions. That's right. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Onslaught is an amalgamation of Professor X and Magneto. What are some other pairs of mutants that could combine to make a powerful supervillain and spawn a massive crossover event? Well, my brain first goes to Cable and Strife. I mean, their different versions of desiring control could combine into something pretty scary, and having Cable's mental fortitude and stability in addition to Strife's raw power? I mean, yikes. Although, I guess we kinda got that, that one time that the ghost of Strife partially possessed Cable, which largely involved him making Cable grow a goatee. Yeah, yeah, that was not really very world-shaking. Imagine if it was, though. Like a 23-part goatee-based crossover? Just watching hair grow. Oh, oh, or maybe it could be like Fear Itself, that one crossover where a bunch of people got different magic hammers. In this case, a bunch of people could have different psychic facial hair, and they could all fight. This all ends with Earth 200-500. Where the Avengers all had beards. Exactly. Marvel, are you listening? So, the first place I went with this wasn't actually Two Mutants, but um, it just seemed really, really like a gimme, which is Rogue and Carol Danvers. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, of course, they're nemeses, or they were for a long time. Rogue absorbed Carol's personality and powers, and Carol's personality would take over occasionally. And they've shared a body more than once, but it was, it was always a case of two psyches inhabiting one body. It wasn't sort of a merged form. And they're both incredibly powerful. They're both incredibly willful. And... They're both characters who've teetered on the brink of supervillainy more than once. And, you know, uh, however they made Carol act, she would still probably be better handled than she was in Civil War II. Oh, yeah. Man, fuck that story. I mean, so there's Legion and the Shadow King, but we've kind of seen that before, albeit in smaller stories like the Mirror Island Saga and other mediums like redacted to avoid spoilers, but... They fit so well together. They're both incredibly powerful, but Legion is limited by what may be mental illness and what may be powers that no mutant could control, and the Shadow King is limited by a lack of body, so again, you just have so much power in one entity at that point, with a lot of the weaknesses removed. So, my next one is two characters who would have to be at kind of specific points in their evolution as characters, but Magic and the Scarlet Witch. Oh, speaking of immense raw power... Mm-hmm, exactly. 
but also those personalities. Like, they've both been through some real heavy trauma and have at times had some pretty big chips on their shoulders. They've got really compatible motivation when it comes to not being controlled. Absolutely, yeah. Honestly, magic would work really well, I think, as half of half of pretty much a lot of different combinations. Like, she's a character who I think would be perfect for something like this. And on the one hand, she kind of already was a villain-ish figure in Inferno, but there's just so much more to be done with Eliana. Shen Zorn and Quan Yin Zorn would combine to form a being that would tangle continuity so hard that actually all of the comics in your collection would literally disintegrate in real life. So, there'd be that. So I've been thinking of compatibilities, and with my last one, I think I'm going to go more in the direction of opposites and say Skids and Paste Pot Pete. Oh, the perfect fusion of sticky and anti-sticky. Or I guess it wouldn't have to be Skids. It could be Eunice the Untouchable and Paste Pot Pete. I'd rather see Skids because she has great fashion sense and Eunice really doesn't. But Paste Pot Pete is compulsory. Storm and Matoxo the Lava Man. They'd control the skies and the earth. Well, okay, more the skies than the earth. Okay, more the skies than, like, the earth a lot. But still... Alex Fields asks on Twitter, Is it fair to call X-Men number 96 the birth of the angry Claremontian narrator? Yes, it is. That is the first place in the series where we see that particular trope of, of Claremont just straight up yelling at a character. And it occurs to me, we talked about that issue, like, literally hundreds of episodes ago. So, Jay, would you like to give our listeners a uh, taste of Angry Memory Lane from X-Men number 96? It's been weeks now since Thunderbird died, and the memory still hurts, doesn't it, Cyclops? The nagging feeling, the fear, that if you'd acted differently, Thunderbird would be alive today. Awake or asleep, you can't escape the images seared into your mind's eye. Images of Count Nefaria making a last, desperate attempt to flee Valhalla base, of Thunderbird trying to stop him. Of Thunderbird's final, defiant cry. You remember what happened next, don't you, Cyclops? And what happened after that? Thunderbird hadn't gotten out. That's the real hell of his death, isn't it, Cyclops? Because you know he hadn't even tried to get out. You and the X-Men had saved the world from a nuclear holocaust, but you'd lost a man to do it. And try as you might, you can't balance those scales in your mind or in your heart. Can you, Cyclops? Can you? Can you? And Cyclops is just yelling no louder and louder every time the narrator asks him this. Like, the narrator is literally bullying Cyclops. Okay, you say that's bad. But the narrator comes back a few times, and I think he's at his absolute worst in X-Men 101, where, like, because he's, he's being, he's being, you know, he's being aggressive, he's being cranky in 96. In 101, he's just flat out mean. Oh, yes, I love this part. This is after uh, Jean Grey almost dies and then comes back as Phoenix, and she's in the hospital, and uh, Logan picks up some flowers for her, hoping to privately give the flowers to her in the hospital, but then all the X-Men are there. Not this time, bub. We told you so, Wolverine. 
because you really should have expected that Jean's friends would stay as close to her as possible until they knew her fate, one way or the other. But then again, maybe you shouldn't have. After all, you've never had any friends. Life and death, it's all the same to you. As meaningless, as casually disposed of, as a bunch of flowers. And in the background of a panel, he's just throwing his flowers in the trash because now he remembers that he doesn't have any friends. <laughs> Damn it, narrator. He didn't do it for very long, but Chris Claremont's face of just berating his protagonists was really charming. So, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the air from a range of fictional characters and concepts, including sometimes the angry Claremontian narrator, but today the microphone goes to Sexy Gambit. Gambit was just helping Ms. Amis the Avengers. Out of the goodness of Gambit's heart, and maybe a chance to get a little closer to the Scarlet Witch or the God of Thunder. But then, against all odds, who did Gambit run into? Gambit's ex-rogue, and she be all over Jamie James like Olay on Cafe. It cleared it to two of them got fierce chemistry. And to be fair, Jamie James, he one attractive, sensitive, and appealing individual. But damn it. You know what? Maybe rogue, she learn what jealousy feel like. What you say, the Beth? Maybe you slide into this Quinjet seat with Gambit. And he take you to the Bayou of Desire. Maybe Rogue see these two gators wrestling, and she think twice about giving up on Cajun love. Or, you know, two pair be a better hand than one pair. Or, Rogue, Jamie James, the Beth. Maybe we see what one of them Avengers be doing, and see if we can make this a full house. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode, alongside original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener and Onslaught supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, the Onslaught continues... With more tie-ins than ever. <laughs> wow, we just derailed the entire show <laughs> and ourselves. You know, it's uh, that's it for Jay Miles explaining the X Men. We're we're done. We we okay. can't explain anything else after yeah. parrots. Um, <laughs> What's the timestamp here? A mystery.